0: Thank you, worship team. Good morning. Hey, I'm, uh, my name's Tim. <laughs> I feel like I need to reintroduce myself. It's been a couple weeks since I've been here. Hey, uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor at Grace Point Church here, and we are so grateful to have you uh, with us uh, this morning. And if you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. Um, and we're grateful to be back as a family. We've been gone for two weeks uh, on a family vacation and a trip in, in some cases. Some would say back home for me. We were in Barbados where I spent many of my growing up years and when we arrived there at Berean Bible Church in particular, um, many said to me, oh, so good to see you. How does it feel to be home? That's right. This is how it would be perceived because I spent so much time here. So uh, we had a great time worshiping with the believers in Barbados. Um, I spoke at Briam Bible Church and uh, had a good time there with them. A little different environment than we got going on here, and that's okay. I had the windows open, all right? We had the ceiling fans up, we had the sweat coming down, and we were, we were in business, right? But, uh, but here we are, and everybody does it a little bit uh, differently. So it's good to be back. I'm grateful to God that people have created air conditioning. And, uh, and we have it here this morning, so we're grateful for that. Um, thank you both to, to Pastor Joel as well as Chuck for uh, covering while I was not here. Um, good stuff you heard from both uh, weeks when I was not here, so grateful to them. Well, we continue in our series called Anchor Point now. We are, I believe, eight parts into this series that is kind of moving toward the end as we walk through a little letter in the New Testament called First Peter. Um, Peter wrote First Peter. He also wrote Second Peter. There you go, a little free information for you this morning. Uh, Peter was one of the followers, what we call disciples of Jesus, one of the most charismatic or expressive um, disciples of Jesus. He was um, known for the only guy to, to walk on the water, and he was also known in a pretty negative way as the one who would deny, in fact, did deny Jesus three times, great highs and great lows in the life of Peter. And so he writes in this little letter to Um, the Christians in the northeast province of Rome, they were out in the boonies. Again, they didn't have electricity yet. They didn't have the internet yet out there. They didn't have the infrastructure of Rome out there yet. And he wrote to them because they were trying to figure out, will we survive as new believers? This whole Christianity thing is brand new, and they're getting pressure from Rome on what they believe. They're being misunderstood. They're being judged. Uh, I think I, a couple of weeks ago I said to you some people thought they were cannibalistic, that they were, the rumor was they were eating um, the flesh of children and drinking their blood. That came from the idea of sharing in communion. They would talk about things like the end times or a kingdom that is to come, and that is kind of nerve-wracking for rulers of the current kingdom and misunderstandings all related to that. And so there was pressure on these people who were trying to carve out a little niche in are we going to survive as the new people of God here. And so Peter, the follower of Jesus, writes this letter to those in the northeast province of Rome, and he, essentially he says this, he wants to encourage them with this, and he writes this at the end of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. I've written to you briefly, and here's why, encouraging you, so kind of taking my courage and giving you a little bit of that, giving you some courage, and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it that of all the things that you have to think about, all the pressure you will feel to give up or walk away or move from these new ideas, the new faith that you are now beginning to own, of all the pressure that you will feel, I want you to know this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And so this Anchor Point series is essentially latching onto this concept and saying, what is it that we can put our Hold our anchor to, or or tie our anchor onto, if you will, and hold on to in the middle of all the things that will pull us and challenge us to move away from the things that are actually true and right and that will hold your faith in times of great. Trouble and distress. And one of those key things at the beginning that we talked about in the first chapter of 1 Peter is this big concept that kind of covers everything. I've come back to it every time. Um, And it's this idea that I am not the center of the universe, but God is. So as we kind of began this letter, we began this way that I am not the center of the universe, but God is. And if we can get under that and, and get behind that and get into that, Worldview, it, it changes everything, and it fixes a lot of issues in our minds and our hearts and our lives and in our understanding of who God is. So this is some big picture framework. Now, we are now in the part of First Peter, where um, Peter has written to uh, these believers, and he's written to him a couple of weeks ago. we covered the idea of how you handle um, authority particularly governmental authority and what that looks like. And we talked about the idea that God is always above whoever is above you, that your governors, your presidents, your rulers, your leaders are not the end. You know, whoever that happens to be is not it. God is above whoever is above you. We talked about that push. Last time we were in the book of First Peter, um, Chuck took us into the, uh, the concept of marriages and work relationships. And really what Peter was doing is walking through of all the relationships that you have, whether it's to your governing authorities or in your spousal personal relationships or in your work relationships, here's how you work through the gospel in those relationships. Here's what it looks like. Now, there's always somebody, though, who has an objection to things that are said, right? Remember a couple years ago, and I think if you can carry this image in your mind through the entirety of this message, this will help you. Several years ago, the elders and I traveled to Dallas, Texas. Some of the elders are still here who went on that trip. The others, we just left in Dallas because we didn't want to bring them back with us. No, just good. We went and we had a, we had a, um, a, a good uh, short weekend, and we listened to a, a great speaker um, share some principles about church leadership uh, at, at this conference held at Dallas Seminary. And he was a great speaker, great communicator, and, and we opened up with the opening session. He gave us about 90 minutes Um, of of talk. And and he came in and he he acknowledged, he said, I was struggling with what I should talk to church leaders about. And there was only about 250 of us in this room. So it's not a, you know, massive conference. And so it was more intimate, more Q&A kind of a thing that was going to happen. We knew that. So we're looking forward to a smaller time of interaction with this leader, whom I still respect to this day. But, But he went on a talk for 90 minutes about the idea of systems. And he said, you know, the importance of systems in the church. Uh, and how when your systems aren't in place, then your vision and all that doesn't really carry through. And he talked about systems and all that and went on. It was good. good. Good talk. Now, at the end, 90 minutes later, he's like, all right. Whew. It was great. Thanks for your attention. Now, right, let's, let's move over to some questions. You've had some questions as you heard me talk. So, so let's go. Any questions? Immediately, the guy in the back raises his hand. So this morning, I want you to keep the guy in the back in mind. Because there's a guy in the back... In this section of 1 Peter that we're going through. And the guy in the back in Dallas a couple of years ago raises his hand. He's like, I have a question. Yeah, you in the back. Can you define system? And the speaker was like, uh, actually I can't. I should be able to do that, shouldn't I? <laughs> and his whole talk just went down the tubes based on that one question because he hadn't delivered the goods on exactly defining what a system is. There's always somebody who's thinking critically about what is happening and not just taking it all in, not just taking it all in, kind of pushing back all along the way like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure. This morning, this morning, as we get into First Peter, it's almost like he's writing with the guy in the back in mind. It's almost like he's writing knowing that, mm, I have a question, yeah, I don't know, yeah, can, I, can I ask you something, Peter? And so we're going to see the guy in the back in First Peter this morning. So if you have your Bible, you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn there to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to jump in at verse 8, carrying it through verse 18, the first part of verse 18. And here's the big picture of where we're going today, and we're going to try to explain this um, throughout our time this morning. Okay, so as you're turning there, here's what we want to say about um, where we're heading this morning it's this concept and hopefully it'll make more sense as we go. And that is that choosing to orient your life for the good of others. All right, here's the big deal. Choosing to orient your life for the good of others is so unusual that it by default orients them toward your God. Choosing to orient your life for the good of others is so unusual that it by default orients them toward your God. Now, I want to explain that, and I think Peter is going after that general concept here in 1 Peter chapter 3. All right. Let's begin at verse 8. Because after he wrote about government and marriages and and work relationships, the guy in the back raises his hand. He's like, Yeah, but Peter, I voted for everybody in office, and I'm not married, and I'm self-employed. So what do you have for me? All right. So he's like, let me let me pick that up with you, guy, guy in the back. Here we go, verse eight finally all of you (laughs) all of you including the guy in the back live in harmony with one another be sympathetic love as brothers be compassionate and humble verse nine do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing because of to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We've got to stop for a moment there. The guy in the back is hearing all this. <laughs> And he's raising his hand. He's going to ask the question, um, okay, Peter, I've heard you say a few times, do good. In fact, in the last chapter, now Peter didn't write in chapters, but in the last chapter, he wrote about doing good a lot. In verse 12 of chapter 2, if you see it in your Bible there, verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That actually in Peter's writing, there's almost like this, this tennis match, this volley going back and forth between two issues. One is when suffering comes over the net on your side of the court, what do you do with it when it's your hit? You hit it back with good. There's this volley back and forth in his letter between suffering, good, suffering, good, suffering, good, coming all the time. There's this back and forth interaction Between do good and suffering, this is Peter's default response to suffering, hardship, and misunderstanding. Now, at a at a macro level, at a at a theoretical level, um, we we can agree with that. In other words, I mean, who would argue with be nice, be kind, be friendly, uh, share, be fair? I mean, who's going to argue with that? But the question is, Peter, what does it really mean to be good and to do good? I mean, verse eleven, he must turn from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it. You know, what does that mean to do good? So the guy in the back raises his hand. Peter, can you please tell me? Can you define good for me? And Peter's like, listen, good question. I just did. (laughs) Let me take you back to verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Because here is what I believe in context Peter means for do good. And it's very convicting and personal, very quickly. He says, finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. As if if you can imagine a musical harmony with voices coming together in such beautiful arrangement that they complement and deepen the, the richness of the, the vocal arrangement in such a way that you think, man, this is more beautiful that they're together than they are, than they're separate. Live in harmony with one another. How do I do that? Be sympathetic. Care for the person sitting next to you. Yeah, but they're not related to me. I have enough going on at work. I have enough going on in my family. I don't even know them. You know, I haven't just met them this morning. All right. Do good, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Then he says in verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. And we all love to do that, don't we? When we get insulted and we get mistreated and we feel like injustice has come. Isn't our first response always to say, oh, I'm so grateful for that. Now I have a chance to bless you in the middle of my injustice. That's just not our default, right? I mean, we repay, without thinking about it, evil with evil. We repay evil with a, a, a a sideways glance or a thought from our heart that isn't quite right and, and peter's saying again don't do that because of this you called that you may inherit a blessing in the verse 10 man what a convicting and, and actually very strong and good verse in verse 10 whoever would love life and see good days and just stop it there for a minute and isn't that your desire if you think about that for a minute i mean don't you want to be the kind of person that loves life and has good days i mean who doesn't want that who wants, it? yeah, I hope my legacy is that I am seen as a pessimistic, negative, critical person by the time I die. I mean, are you kidding me? This is the, why you make the decisions you do. Whoever wants to see good days, to love life, okay, then I'm listening. Now you have my attention because that's what I want. You want good days. I want to see life and the vitality of it. then he says this, must keep, it's very practical, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. In other words, don't use your words, don't use your language to be deceitful, to be sideways, to be crooked, to be cutting people down, to be negative, to be critical. In that sense, don't do that. And so, excuse me, Peter, question, what does it mean to do good? I just told you. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic to people that you otherwise don't know. Be compassionate, be humble, serving one another. Use your language to build up people. If you want to have good days and see joy in life and vitality, turn your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from deceitful speech. Don't do that. All right. I agree. Sounds good. All right? You can make that into a bumper sticker. You could put that on your calendar. Or you could put that on your screensaver, you know, on your phone or your, uh, your computer. Now, the question is, another question, Peter. Um, who's really going to know that I'm doing this? And a lot of these are attitudes of the heart. Who's, who's really going to know? And how important is this? And so verse 12, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he hears, excuse me, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's almost like, um, you ever been warned as a kid back in the Santa Claus days? Remember Santa Claus days? If you're a kid and you're still in Santa Claus days, there's chilling church going on right now. Why don't you run down there real quick? <laughs> Okay, so remember that, like, um, you know, Santa knows who's been naughty or nice. Isn't there a song about that, so it'd be good for goodness sake or whatever, right? You know that song? Yeah, good. No one knows that song, right? There's that song out there, okay? So, okay, it's almost like Peter's saying, there's this great Santa Claus in the sky who watches all who are naughty or nice, and his ears are attentive to the nice people and to the naughty people. He puts you on the the coal list, and he doesn't listen to your prayers. It's almost kind of like that. He's saying, listen, in other words, God knows, right? He's there. He listens, he cares. This matters to God. His eyes are attentive, his ears are there. And it's not like Santa Claus where it's a delivery of of judgment for for being mean and all that. It's not not like that. But it's more that, listen, it matters. It matters what goes on in our hearts toward one another. It matters if we're sympathetic. It matters if we're compassionate to people that we don't even know. It matters. God cares about it. And then he asks this question. It's really not even a question. It's phrased like a question, more of a statement. Who's going to harm you? Verse 13 if you're eager to do good. Because this is the fear of the people in the, in the northeast province of Rome there because Rome is going to harm me. People, the, the, my business leaders are going to do me harm. The, the teachers in my school, my kids' school, are going to do them harm educationally or socially because they believe differently. They're not going to be invited to the birthday parties because they believe differently. And so Peter kind of lays it out and he asks this question. It's really not even a question but a statement. Who is going to harm you? If you're eager to do good, and so the volley comes right back over the net again in relation to suffering and hardship and misconceptions, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I mean, if you are known as someone who is for the benefit of people who are against you, who's going to really want to do you harm? And this generally is a principle that is true, isn't it? you've seen this work in your life when you support somebody who doesn't need your you know doesn't deserve your support when you back somebody up who who did not back you up last time that you've seen the benefit of this general principle but then the smart guy in the back raises his hand again he's like excuse me Peter I have a question before you continue I have an answer to your question who's going to harm you if you're going to do good Nero And and all the government officials that he sends out to us, they're going to harm us even if we're eager to do good. Oh, and don't forget my professor. I was eager to do good in his class, and he did not do me good. Oh, and don't forget my roommate. I did some good things for him, and he was not for me. Oh, one more. My in-laws. Don't forget about them. I got a whole list of people, my neighbors, my boss. Did you know, Peter, I was eager to do good in my last job and things didn't work out and here's why. I got my coworkers, just just so you know, I have a list of people you ask the question. I have a list of people who kind of are eager not to do good for me when I do good to them. So what do you have for me, Peter? Because that doesn't seem like it works. So Peter comes back in verse 14 and he says, but as a concession, even if, acknowledging this truth, That this doesn't always work. Even if you should suffer for what is right. And again, the volley comes back to suffering. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And he cuts to the motivation of the suffering. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened because the reason you're being persecuted, the reason that you're suffering is because the people are doing it to you because they're afraid of what you believe and they're afraid of who they might need to become on the basis of your faith. They're afraid of what your faith and Jesus means to their system, to their world, and they're not willing to embrace that or engage that or deal with that. Therefore, it's easier to persecute you and the persecution, the hardship, the misconceptions are coming out of fear. Fear deep within their own selves an insecurity in who they are and the systems that they build, don't be afraid like they are. Don't be afraid. Continue in the midst of the suffering volley that comes your way over the net to hit back with good. And even if you suffer, even if, yes, Nero comes for you, even if you're burned alive, even if you're fed to lions in the Colosseum, even if, like Peter, was arrested and ultimately murdered, for the sake of the gospel, even if your in-laws never get you, even if your prof never gets you, even if your boss and coworkers never get you, even if you suffer for doing good, you're blessed. You're blessed. It's hard to get our minds around that. This is what Peter says next, and this is how it works. So in your hearts, set apart, Christ is Lord. And this is the only way it works. Because how in the world, at a practical level, can we maintain that perspective for a lifetime? Because Peter's saying, if you want this to work, if you want to, when the suffering volley comes over the net, if you want to hit it back with doing good consistently, the only way to do it is verse 15. But set apart Christ as Lord. He is the Lord. Not your prosperity, not your reputation, not your legacy, not your family, not your business. Set apart Christ as Lord. And then... Verse 15 continues. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But to do this with gentleness and respect. Now, if you've been in church for a while, this verse uh, is familiar to you. If you haven't, then this verse isn't. Okay? Okay. Um, But if you're familiar with this verse, often you think of, uh, okay, I need to take a course in apologetics training. Apologetics in Christian language basically means I need to be able to defend my faith and explain to people why I believe what I believe. It's good. It's fair. I'm for that. I'm for theological training and all that. I'm for that, all right? But in the context here, I don't believe that's what Peter's talking about. He's not saying, therefore, in the middle of doing good, go ahead and get your your master's degree in theology so that you're ready to talk to people about it. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, listen, get ready. (laughs) you're doing, when you do unusual things, people are going to look at you and ask why. When you do unusual stuff, when you respond in an unusual way to your boss, to your family, to your coworkers, to your spouse, when you respond in an unusual way, people are just, you know it, they're just going to ask, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you staying with them? Why are you not Jumping into the gossip around the water cooler like everybody else is. Come on now, why do you go to church every Sunday morning or, or Wednesday? Or why do you volunteer your time? Why do you give like that? Why? Why do you spend your vacation on a mission trip? I and mean, why do you do unusual things for the good of other people? Why do you volunteer for things like summer school tutoring? You know, why do you do that? When you do unusual things, people are going to ask you ultimately. Why? And Peter's just saying, get get ready to talk about it. Get ready to talk about it. This, This is why. This is why. Because I believe, I believe, that this is what God has done for me. This is what I believe God has done for me. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about why I'm doing this. And walk right into that conversation. This is not a call to get everybody, you know, all all academicized up is that a word i don't know i just made it up but you don't have to have all your theological i's dotted and t's crossed this doesn't mean that you need to study greek and hebrew though there's value and room for that okay i'm for that but it doesn't mean all that it means listen just get ready to talk about it when you start doing unusual things and caring about other people and doing things for other people they're just going to ask you come on why why get ready get ready just be prepared be prepared verse 16 Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your, again, good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So people are going to say, yeah, I know that you're talking bad about, you know, Joe or Jane or whatever. But I don't know. They're just good people. They keep helping our family. I know you may not like them, but I don't know what your problem is. Because they're doing good. Even in the middle of your persecution of them. Middle of your judgment of them. It is better, verse 17, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil if you're going to suffer if the volley comes over hit it back with doing good now the guy in the back he's been listening to all this and he's thinking all right fair um no major issues um but i do have one more question peter before you continue um i agree with all this um makes sense to me, you know, and there's a, there's a time, and Peter acknowledges it here, that, you know, there are times you'll suffer for doing the wrong things. So, Peter, I get it that if I cheat on the test and I'm caught, I deserve an F, right? I get that. Um, if I don't clean up the, the apartment after a party, I deserve a swirly or something. Okay, I mean, I, I get that, right? There, that I might suffer for doing something that I shouldn't have done. I mean, that makes sense. But come on now, Peter. Um, what you're saying. The cost of doing good in the middle of injustice, in the middle of feeling like my rights were violated and trampled on, the cost of doing that is pretty great. So I just have a question, Peter. One question. Why? To to what end? For what purpose? Why should I think about this? Because what you're saying is pretty significant you want me to do good in the middle of suffering you want me you want me to be the one to turn the other cheek you want me to be the one in my marriage relationship to change the direction of this thing come on it's his responsibility it's her responsibility i mean you you don't know how many times i've tried peter you don't even know my story you don't know of all the things that i've had to deal with are you kidding me my family And you want me to be the one to do good, right? Is that what you're saying? You want me to be the one? Why? And then Peter lays down this trump card, this kind of ace in the back pocket, and he says, here's why. And if you can beat this, go for it. If you can't, follow it. And he lays it out at the beginning of verse 18, and he says this, For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And he drops that in this letter and says, here's why. Here's why you should be first. Here's why you shouldn't wait. Because your Savior did this for you. I mean, anyone else got something on that? Anyone else have something to top that? Anyone else been asked to, to die for the failures of somebody else? I mean, wasn't it Jesus? Let's not, let's not romanticize the cross of Jesus right now. Let's go back to the reality in Luke 22, um, 42, I believe it is. Jesus is recorded as saying essentially these words. Lord, if it, or, if it is possible, Father, if it is possible... Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Remember that? Jesus praying and asking his Father, I don't want to do, if it were up to me, I don't want to do the thing that you're asking me to do. And let's just not romanticize that. Let's just talk about that reality. Here's Jesus saying, the thing that you're asking me to do, the good that you're asking me to do, to go to the cross, to die for the sins of people to die for people who are going to be mocking me and beating me and and tearing me down? You're asking me to die for them and to be first in doing that. And if it is possible, take it from me. I don't want to do this. I'm not excited about this. This is painful. I'm giving up my rights. If it's possible, please take this cup from me. Let's not romanticize this. Jesus didn't walk to the cross with great glory and honor and couldn't wait to die for us. The facts are, he's saying, Father... Please, if it's possible, don't make me go through this. But not my will, but yours be done. And with this conviction of resolve says, even though I may not want to do what I know I need to do, I'm going to do my Father's will. I'm going to, in the midst of suffering, persecution, trouble, misunderstanding, judgment, I'm going to do good. Why? Why should I do good in the midst of trouble? Why should I be the one to lead a change in my marriage? Why should I be the one to lead a change in my school and my family? Why should I be the one to serve and volunteer and give in the way that I should do? Why should I be that one when no one else is? For Christ died for sins yours, mine. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he tags this phrase on at the end, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. Why? It was so unusual that this would happen. It was so unusual that someone would die for someone else that it becomes the most talked about event in human history to bring people to God. So Peter says, come on now, this is what your Savior has done. This is what Jesus has done. Why? Not just because it's a good idea to serve people. No. Because your unusual effort to do good will bring people to God. And they're going to ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why is your church doing what it's doing? Why is your small group doing what it's doing? Why is it doing good the way that it's doing it? Why? See, choosing to orient your life for the good of others is so unusual. That it by default orients them toward God. That it just by default makes them move in a direction to understanding the kind of God that we serve. Because this is the God that we serve. Who sent his son to do something he didn't want to do but did willingly do because it was the will of his father. Which is where we find ourselves. I don't want to be the first one to do the things I know I need to do. Someone else should do that. They're the ones who made the mistake. They're the ones who failed. They're the ones who judge me. They're the ones who are never going to get it right. And Peter says, why? For Christ died for sins once for all. So a couple questions for us as we try to bring this closer to home. So what? Number one, who do I need to reorient to? Who do I need to reorient to? For some of you, this might be a child, <laughs> one of your children or your whether verbalized it or not, disappointed in, frustrated with. I feel like they're not listening. They're not in line with what you're, the way you raise them. Might be a parent for others of you who's never quite been the parent that you need them to be, you know, not been there for you or actively been against you. For some, it might be a classmate, a bully, for lack of a better term, in business or in school. Someone who pushes their weight around in a way that this isn't healthy or good. Gets what they want and pushes you down the food chain. For some of you, maybe someone sitting across the aisle or across the, the room here you know, who's just, just not quite oriented right toward them. Might be a leader in the community. Who knows? You know, the question is, who do I need to reorient to? Who is it that I need to reorient to? And then the next question comes right on the heels of that. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And this is where it gets hard, because the ask is on you to be first. The request is, you lead. You be the one. Don't wait anymore. Forgive. (laughs) Oh, that's easy to say. You know how many years it's been like this? Mm -hmm. For Christ died for sins. Once for all. All that will ever be. You want me to be first to forgive my spouse? Yes. You want me to be the first one to be patient when no one else is? Yep. You want me to be the first one to volunteer when no one else is? Yeah. Come on now. No one else is doing that. Christ died for sins and once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring people to God. That We might know the character of a God who loves and cares. Who do you need to reorient to? What do you need to do? And then finally who can help you? Who can help me? Who can help you? Who do you need to tell this to? Who do you need to speak this to? To say this to? To say, listen, I need to do this. I need to forgive. I need to be patient. I need to give. I need to volunteer. I need to serve. I need to imagine, create, instigate within my community, neighborhood within my family. I need to do this. I need to do the good that I know I need to do. Who is it that you need to reorient to? What is it you need to do? And then who are you going to tell to help you in that process? Because Peter is is saying, in the middle of the volley of suffering and trouble that comes, serve it right back. Serve it right back with good. Why? Not only does Ephesians 2.10 come into play that we are saved to do good works, yes, but because, come on now, you and I, have a God who sent a Savior to model this for us. For Christ died for your sin, for my sin, once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring people to God. And the more that you and I orient our lives for the good of people around us, the more unusual that becomes. And the more people are like, hey, well, can you tell me why you're doing this? This is weird. This is strange. How does it work? Why? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you why I do this. Let me tell you about my God. And this is Peter's ask. And this is a tough ask. It's a big ask. But come on, this is what Jesus did for us. He died for our sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring people to God. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the time that we share in these moments together. We're grateful for your word that teaches us and shapes our thinking, um, gives us clarity of vision and hope for what can be. And I pray that you would give us courage as men and women. Uh, boys and girls here listening, soaking in, maybe pushing back, having some hesitations, maybe just hoping that the conviction doesn't stay too long, hoping that maybe I don't actually make the change I think I should make. Father, give us courage to see this through. I pray that your spirit would empower us to move in the directions we know we need to, to to share this with the person we need to share this with, to ask for help, where we need to ask... For help to reorient for the good of people around us in such an unusual way, such an unusual way, that they can see the consistent good care, love, compassion, sympathy, speech that we use, and ultimately ask, Why? And we have a chance to say, Let me tell you about my God. So, Father, we thank you that we serve a God who sent his Son Jesus as in truth, a firm foundation of our faith, a firm foundation upon which we can act, live, and hope. We thank you for this, and I pray for courage for us to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.